So in that first session, what did we try to do? We tried to lay out a sort of general topography of marriage in the sense of the various seasons that you can forecast and its effects on couples. Well, here what we want to do is we want to talk about when are you really in trouble? So I've labeled this one imminent disaster. Not because marriage is an imminent disaster. Marriage is wonderful. It's a blessing by the Lord. And the point of marriage, of course, is sanctification, not satisfaction. However, you need to have some uh, guidelines and, and some red flags defined in your mind so that you know, hey, are we in choppy waters? Is our marriage at a place where maybe we need to do some reading? Good marriage books out there. Or we need to go to a marriage seminar and really do some work together, or that we may even need to go talk to someone together, an independent third party who can help us be more and more Christ-like to one another. So that's what this is about. It's about trying to help you define uh, what it is that when you see it, you know, okay, we really need to start working. So last, last one, we looked at the U-shaped curve. We looked at that from behavioral economics set appropriate expectations, uh, and should a need for something other than our own satisfaction to be the goal of our marriage, that it is sanctification that is the goal of our marriage. And so now it's when is a marriage in trouble. So I'm a Presbyterian. If you were here last night, I gave you six points that alliterated. That makes my Presbyterian heart so happy. Six, not even three, but six points that alliterate. I, just, I should just walk off. That's like a grand slam in Presbyterian <laughs> preaching. But so I've got three more for you, what I call the three C's um, in the idea of issues, when we have issues in our marriage. And those are core issues, communication issues, and credibility issues. All of these issues can be um, adjusted and we, we can talk about them, but it, it's something that helps us to kind of have a grid over our marriages. So let's talk about core issues. Core issues. There, these are going to be three more C's. Can you, I have three C's nested inside three C's. <laughs> Galaxy brain. Presbyterian. So, so three, three more C's for you. It's chemistry, character, compatibility. We're going to look at all three of those. But those are kind of three things that help your marriage kind of stay afloat and also to be able to assess how connected are we in this moment and what are things that we can do to increase that connection. Now, some, some marriages start off with a disadvantage here. And what I mean by that is, is that especially in one of those three C's, sometimes a marriage doesn't have high chemistry or it doesn't have high compatibility or it doesn't have high character. And yet, oftentimes what seems like a disadvantage from our vantage point, God is using in order to show his strength. Right, so this isn't like a, if I just make sure these three are really high, I know my marriage is going to be just fine, and therefore it's a platform for self-righteousness. 
Our marriage is a really great, awesome marriage. Dear Lord, thank you for not making my marriage like their marriage, the publican marriage, right? No, that's, that's not where we are. God, oftentimes, if there's some issue in, in these three, chemistry, character, compatibility, he can work in wonderful ways. And watching him work in those wonderful ways, ways often becomes a testimony to one another and to a watching world of his incredible strength. However, it would be if I could write it for all couples that as they get married and then throughout their marriage that these three are high. I, I like to scale everything, right? Scale of one to 10, scale of one to 10, right? Like, you know someone has come to see squires if they start, so you like squirrels on a scale of one to 10. How much do you like squirrels? Oh, you've been to see squires. Squires scales everything. So I like for those to be seven or above in all three of those, especially when a couple comes for premarital counseling. But again, I recognize that sometimes and in some seasons, they go less than that. And in some seasons, they can be threes and twos. Right? That's, that's what some of that dip is, is that there feels like seasons of loneliness when all of these feel like they're in the threes and twos, and how do we begin to bump them up? So let's look at the first one, chemistry. Chemistry is the longing to be together. It's the magnetism that happens inside of your relationship. It's your thoughts running after them and your affections running after them, even when you want to be thinking about other things. It's that sense that we just get one another, that there's a way in which the Lord has created us to be together. Again, not in the you complete me sense of the way, but my history and my personality, it seems to find some sort of match and resonance in yours. We seem to laugh about the same things. We seem to enjoy some similar things. Uh, we seem to have the same level of um, uh, uh, enjoyment in how much we talk about intellectual things versus non-intellectual things. It just, it seems like I get it and you get me uh, and I get you. And it, and it just works and flows uh, very easily. There's physical chemistry and there's emotional chemistry. And physical chemistry is that sense in which like I'm drawn to you physically and um, that can just feel right with you. It's, it's, I love holding your hand. I love giving you a kiss on the cheek. There's something about just wanting to be connected to you physically. I feel drawn to you physically. Last night, we talked about intimacy, and I talked about how there were multiple domains of intimacy, and one of the domains of intimacy is physical intimacy. And, and this is how drawn we feel to each other physically. Now, that's easy early on in marriage, but, but as your marriage gets older, you have to navigate a number of issues. As again, your attention gets divided when you have kids and you're exhausted. And so how much uh, strength do you have emotionally and physically for one another? As you get older and your body just feels different, as your body begins to look different, as we age with one another, um, 
One of the professions that has the highest rate of infidelity of any other profession is teaching. And one of the reasons for that is because their view of beauty doesn't age with their spouse. It just stays, especially like that high school level, where it just stays at that 17 or 18 year old phase. And it highlights for them the fact that there is a physical chemistry drawn to that rather than learning how to allow their physical chemistry to develop and stay connected with their spouse as you, as you age. And then there's emotional chemistry. And again, just as exhausted physically, you're exhausted emotionally. Oftentimes what you get to see in me is the dregs of me. Everything else requires something of me. Work requires something of me and friends require something of me. And, you know, I got to put on my small group face and I got to put in all the stuff that is acceptable in the world. I can't show up to work with all my stuff kind of out. I've got to be squared away and I can't show up to small groups immediately with all my stuff out. There's a certain level of I've got to be acceptable. But with you... I can be exhausted, and, and I can be irritated, and I can be cold, because everyone else requires so much of me throughout my day. Satan loves that, by the way. He, he loves to get you in a spot where the relationship where you need warmth the most, you are presenting the coldest. Um, there's actually a new phrase that, that sociologists have come up with, and it's called time, time poverty. Have you, have you guys heard of that phrase before, time poverty? The idea is, is that we can get to the point where we are so harried, so committed to so many things that we have no time. And actually, the biggest robber of our time are those little thieves right here. These seem to be the biggest time robbers for us. We end up looking and scrolling on these things and all of a sudden we've lost 30 minutes. We haven't been productive. We haven't been restored. We've just been distracted. And unlike economic poverty, with economic poverty, that's the thing people are terrified of is economic poverty. But economic poverty doesn't have as strong a correlation with depression uh, anxiety or suicidality. Time poverty does. The higher the rates of time poverty directly, the higher the rates of anxiety, depression, and suicidality. And so Satan loves for you to just get busy and to lose the rest that he has for you that then pours into you by his spirit and his word, through prayer, through his people, that then allows you to give and be connected one to another. That emotional chemistry, like I said in the, the other session, it's emotional chemistry that often leads to physical chemistry. People think it's the other way around. And, and that's because usually when we, especially guys, uh, when we uh, find a spouse, the very first thing that we tend to do is we tend to look through a physical grid, right? Am I, do I find this person attractive? And then everything else falls out after that. And then we do that with everybody. And if this person isn't attractive, I don't, I'm not threatened by them. I'm not worried about something untoward developing. And I allow myself to be known. 
And then all of a sudden that emotional chemistry starts to build. And that emotional chemistry then puts pressure on physical chemistry, right? As I was telling the, the leaders last night, the thing about intimacy and connection is as they tend to rise and fall together, they're, they're connected. And so when any of the one really begin to come up, it tends to drag the others with it. When they tend to go down, it drags the others with it. So if you're always physically exhausted and emotionally exhausted and you don't have connection with your spouse and all of a sudden you have drag, it tends to drag the desire for physical connection, for recreation, to be able to discuss ideas all down with it. Well, if you've got a friend and all of a sudden there's emotional chemistry, guess what it does? It puts pressure that that would lead to something even more connective, that sort of physical chemistry, right? So you can have chemistry problems when all of a sudden you begin to recognize I'm not drawn to them. It doesn't have to be that same giddy high, again, like like that infatuation stage. But instead of it being easy, instead of it being something that I enjoy, instead of desiring to be around them, I want to be known by them, all of a sudden it begins easier to just keep them at arm's length, to keep them away from you. The thing about intimacy is, is that when you pause intimacy or stop intimacy, it becomes really hard to restart. You begin to feel, it's okay, we're just going to live life next to each other. We don't have to be intimately known one to another. And then when do you choose to unpause that? When do you choose to be vulnerable with each other again? That's, that's really, really difficult. And so by little bitty paper cuts, all of a sudden you find yourself beginning to lose chemistry with one another. And that's really, really tough. Okay, so chemistry. The next one is character. Character is that we value the same things together. This is unity. How unified are we? Paul tells us that you shouldn't be unequally yoked. That's what 2 Corinthians 6.14 is all about. And that's because he knows that when you have diversity in worldview, you have diversity in what you value to be true, it almost always leads to trouble. Now, interestingly, he says that if you're already married and one of you becomes a believer, then you are to stay married to them. Because it's through you that your spouse and your children can be sanctified in the sense that you are the one displaying the gospel and you hope that they come to hear and know the Lord, the Holy Spirit uses it to convert them. So it's not, it's not all, all or nothing, but at the same time, hey, if you're walking into this and you recognize that you're coming from a different worldview, you hold things to be different than the way that I hold things to be, it's going to cause so many problems as we make it through life. If my number one is mission and your number one is vocation, that's going to cause a lot of problems, right? If, if my number one is children and your number one is economics, that's going to cause problems. And so we need to have a unity of worldview. Now, interestingly, you know, marriage and family therapists, they can't tell you what to do here. All they can do is describe to you that those marriages that have joint meaning are the happiest marriages that they find. 
Now you can write like a Dunder Mifflin mission statement for your marriage if you want to. The greatest marriage of all marriages that's out to marriage the way that no one has married before. It doesn't mean a thing. And it's really hard to be committed to that sort of nonsensical um, missional statement in the midst of really difficult seasons. And in any marriage, there will be difficult seasons. Instead, Christ gives you your mission statement. He tells you what the meaning of marriage is, that in those difficult seasons, guess what you get to do? You get to reflect Christ's character to one another. In a moment where it feels like of the 100% of what is going on in this fight, I own five and you own 95 do I walk in and immediately tell you, you need to repent of your 95? No, splinter and log. I own my 5% first. And the only way we can do that is when we are centered in the principles of Christ by his word and enabled to do it by the grace that he gives through his spirit. We're able to walk in and say, even in the most difficult times, I'm going to be like Christ to you in as best a way as I know how, reflecting the virtue of his character towards the ends of your increase in love of him and my increase in love of you, because that's what the Bible wants me to do, right? So it gives you the sort of unified character that that all the marriage and family therapists say, yes, that's exactly what you want. It helps propel you through difficulty when you guys have a committed joint mission and yet they have no idea how to get you to that unified joint mission. Now, the problem is that worldviews can change. Character can and does change in the midst of marriage. And that can make it very, very difficult, especially if one, you know, one gets married and purports to be a believer. They, they know that this is really important to their fiance, and so they need to make some sort of declaration of belief, but they're only really doing it in order to get married because they really, Jane is their idol, right? And they don't really care about anything else other than that Jane will be their spouse, or sometimes they genuinely make a profession of faith as far as we can tell, and then all of a sudden something comes along. Christ warns us of this, and he tells us that uh, a couple of things can cause people as seed in order to die rather than to have fruitful growth. And what is it? It's when challenge comes along, that's, that's the, the sun that comes along and scorches it, or all of a sudden things, the worldly cares, that's the, that's the thorns that choke it out. In other words, you can have success and that can run people off and, you know, all of a sudden Christ and the church isn't as important for them. And this is really tough for a particular marriage if that begins to happen. I've actually seen more marriages in which one believer ends up, or one spouse ends up being a believer, and their trajectory of sanctification is like this, and the other one professed to be a believer, but there just doesn't seem to be any fruit. And that's really hard for us to, to work through, other than to just pray, Lord, it seems like maybe there needs to be a conversion here. 
Not, not just an engagement, but maybe even a conversion, that this person would love the Lord and therefore have the ability to have the sort of character that would help propel us through a lifetime of marriage that while wonderful also will have its difficulty. As the only anchor, my, my daughters, they know that when it's time for them to find a spouse, my first and foremost requirement is that they find someone who loves the Lord only just a little bit more than they love her. That's my first requirement. You can't get daylight between those, how quickly you stack them on top of each other. But he must love the Lord just slightly more than he loves you. Because if he doesn't, and if you don't love the Lord just slightly more than you love him, you're not going to have this sort of character uh, ability, the unity that you're looking for in order that you might be able to make it through life together well. And so there has to be um, a oneness. This is, this is the one fleshness of it. When, when a spouse seems to make some sort of apostate, if, if they get away from the church or if they just don't even seem to be engaged, oftentimes the thing that I'm trying to do for them is get them into the gospel. I'm not even worried about, hey, this is how I need you to be a better spouse to your spouse, because the likelihood that they're going to do that is actually pretty low. The likelihood that they're going to be able to sustain that is pretty low. What I want them to have is some sort of experience of Christ. I want them to fall madly in love with Christ, because if they will fall madly in love with Christ… I know that they will try harder and harder to be the spouse that they're called to be. That They will have the sort of unity of character that's required of them. So if you, you know, I don't, I don't suspect that you have any of uh, that here in the sense of one spouse who's believer and another one's not. But if you know and you get the sense that that's happening, you really do need to get someone to counselor pastor like a marriage therapist in this instance isn't going to be a whole bunch of help for you because they can set up a whole bunch of rules and you can talk about communication and you can do all of that. But what you need is a commitment to Christ in your marriage and it's the number one thing that will help propel you through difficult times. Okay, so from character to compatibility. Compatibility, where character is unity, compatibility is diversity. You've heard that old saying that um, birds of a feather flock together, and then you've also heard opposites attract. Well, which is it? And the answer is both. There, there are two different domains, but both of which have to be high in order for things to go well. So compatibility is the degree to which we marry in our opposite and build each other up in our oppositeness. Um, chemistry tends to reveal itself first in any relationship. Character tends to reveal itself second. Compatibility tends to reveal itself third. And then oppositely, it is compatibility, the ability to build each other up in our differences that often begins to wane first. That then tends to affect chemistry. And sometimes then that begins to affect the character, the unity of the marriage. So compatibility 
is being in opposite of one another and building each other up. Now, interestingly, in Genesis 2 and 18, God describes Eve as a helper fit for him, fit for Adam. Now, the Hebrew fit for him is it's actually just one preposition, and, and the, the prepositions in Hebrew are just one letter. In this case, it's a B or a bait. And, and they, they have a range, just, just like all words have a range of meaning, right? So it's not always just one thing, but there's a central essence to each of these prepositions. And the central essence of the bait is opposite. Right, so, so when it's helper fits for him, it's, it's genuinely communicating she is a helper in his opposite, coming together in this perfect slot and key sort of sense. We do complement one another. And so we seem to be drawn to people who complement us in certain ways. What does that mean? Well, it's not always the same for everybody, but generally extroverts marry introverts spenders marry savers morning people they marry evening people right and there are all these ways in which you are different from me in a good way that it helps draw me to that perfect middle I had a professor once who said that it is in this oppositeness that we are drawn to the perfect middle and the only perfect middle is Christ Christ is perfection and so there's a way in which having you be opposite to me helps grow me, helps pull me out, and I know it. I know I natively need it. You can, if you can think back to when you first met your spouse, and let's, let's say they might have been a little bit more extroverted than you, and it pulled you out, maybe of your tendency to isolate and be alone, or you were the extrovert, the social butterfly that was all around the room. And your spouse, who was an introvert, got you to actually focus and to, to be there one-on-one -on -one and not just always be around. And that's great. And yet it's the thing that will drive you nuts. It's that backstab effect. That thing that draws you to them is also the thing that drives you crazy about them. Um, and so when in your opposite you begin to have that sort of tension. Do you build each other up or do you tear each other down? That, that's the essence of compatibility. Conflict should lead to Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness displays peace. It displays unity. Again, we'll, we'll actually talk about that Tomorrow, if you're, if you're just a guest here and you would like to come back tomorrow morning, I'm sure Steve and the other pastors would love for you to be here. Uh, unfortunately, you got me as your preacher tomorrow, so you're going to have to put up with it. But we're going to be looking at Titus 3, and it's specifically about unity and peace because it has this ability to display something of the character of the Prince of Peace to a watching world. And so being able in your differentness to lean into each other, to look first again at one's own sins rather than always trying to call out somebody else's sin, 
being first to repent genuinely of my own sin, not forcing you to repent of yours before I'm willing to look at mine. There's a way in which compatibility and leaning into each other allows us to reflect something of the gospel of grace. And when we prioritize our sanctification in this compatibility, when I prioritize my looking more like Christ in my marriage, rather than my satisfaction, what I find is a marriage well satisfied. There's something called the hedonism paradox. I was talking to the leaders last night about it. Maybe you've heard it before. But the hedonism paradox says that those countries that have the most um, amount of spending income where they can run after their own delights tend to have the highest rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide versus countries that have very little by way of that expenditure tend to have lower amounts of depression, anxiety, and suicide. Why is that? You, you would think, you would think natively that our ability to run after the things that we find joyous would bring us more joy and satisfaction, but that's not true because joy and satisfaction are a byproduct, not a goal. Joy and satisfaction are a byproduct of our willingness to work and to pursue the Lord in our jobs, in our relationships, in our own personal piety, reflecting the virtue and character of Christ. And the more we do that, the more what we will find is, is that we are satisfied even in the most difficult phases of our marriages. Lastly, compatibility is also the ability to lean into each other's strengths while building up our own weaknesses. I always tell people that if I, could, if I could configure your life, which I can't and praise the Lord, I can't, but if I could configure your life, I would have you two-thirds of the time leaning into a strength and one-third of the time building up a weakness. Because you can never get to the point where you say, I'm just going to do my strengths. Nope, that's, that's not, the Lord requires a lot of you and in your life, you're going to have to do, if it's vocationally, if it's at home, if it's in your marriage, if it's your own personal sanctification, you're going to have to do things that you're not good at. You don't have the option to just not do those things. But the majority of the time, you're leaning into the strengths, the way the Lord has designed you. That's, that's where I want you configured most of the time. Well, that means leaning into each other's strengths. Right, being able to lean into if one of you is more organizational than the other, right? They, they may have more to say about like where we put stuff and how we do things and maybe even a little bit more to say about things like budgeting. My wife is the budgeter. She has a plan. She has a five-year plan. She has a backup three-year plan, a backup five-year plan, and a backup backup five-year plan. That's the way the Lord has made her. I wake up and just say, I don't know where I am, but we're going to make this fun. <laughs> we lean into each other. She's the one who tends to do the things like she's thinking about 401k. She's thinking about retirement. She's thinking about saving for kids' college. She's doing those sort of things that I know are her strengths, right? I, I go, I work, and then she tells me where the money goes afterwards. Fine. I trust you, right? Um, 
I am more social than she is. If, if she could write life, it would pretty much be, hey, let's wake up, let's parent the kids, and let me go be alone with a book in the back, right? Um, we have an office that we've added on to our house since COVID, uh, and I was preaching recently through Luke, and there was the passage in Luke, oh, I want to say it's two or three, where he goes to be in a desolate place. He's been, he's been healing all day and all night, and he's exhausted, and so he goes to be by himself in a desolate place. And I just made an offhand comment that that's my wife's life verse, that she would love for her life verse to be, I went alone and into a desolate place. And so on our office door, we now have a plaque that says, the desolate place. <laughs> I, I pull my wife out. I get her to engage more, and she leans into my strength of relationality, though she recognizes that it exhausts and it's her weakness, right? So part of compatibility is learning what those strengths and weaknesses are and learning the way that the Lord has uh, disposed you in order that you might lean into them. Now, I'm a complementarian, and that means that I believe that there is inherent authority uh, structure for the man in any marriage. I, I know, that's not super popular, but that's, that's, I genuinely believe that. So it's not a 50-50 thing for me, right? There is a sense in which I am the first to suffer. I am the first to sacrifice. And I am the first to be able to say, this is what I think God's word requires of us. You should see in me, me applying God's word on my heart first, right? As regards to sin, I should be looking at my own heart nine times for every time I look at yours. And you should see that lived out, that I am trying to grow in my sanctification, that I'm trying to more and more love you as Christ loves you. And therefore, when there's some issue in which there needs to be some amount of authority, you know that you can trust me. So I'm not a, I'm not a this in the sense of like it's 50-50 egalitarian. No, I, I believe that there is a way in which men are meant to protect and provide for their spouses and for their families. But you lean into each other, and that means that sometimes the way you lean into each other, my wife, though I'm the provider by way of finances, my wife is just much better at planning for those finances. And I am fine for her to be the planner. And it really does help. So compatibility. Now, we can, you can get sideways with compatibility uh, when all of a sudden, instead of leaning into each other's strengths, you begin to demand your own needs be met. You begin to demand that your other, your spouse, and all of their sins be killed first. Um, and you want individual, I want, I want you to be like me rather than I want us to be one flesh together. So those three core issues, which are uh, uh, chemistry, character, and compatibility, they, send, they seem to sit at the middle of what the relationship is. And when you begin to feel like any one of those three domains begins to get in that bottom portion, a five or below, that means it's time to go and start doing some work. Again, this doesn't mean you have to run to a marriage therapist as such, though I'm sure there are plenty of good marriage therapists and there are good Christian marriage therapists out there. But you need to be doing something, right, if it's a book. And oftentimes, if you're really beginning to push down to that lower third, one, two, or three, you need someone like a third party to help you 
in order to be able to point out what's going wrong. They're not invested in it. It's so easy to just kind of trigger each other and make it hard for us to recover in those three core issues. So those are, those are core issues. Now let's move to communication issues. It's the number one thing that people report when they come for couples counseling. So people show up and I usually have no idea why they're there. I, they, I, don't, I don't do an intake form. I don't, I don't look like a traditional therapist. I look like a pastor who has counseling experience, right? So people make appointments with me. We sit down and I go, floor is yours. Tell me why you're here. And the number one thing that people report is we have communication issues, right? And communication issues is really just a cover word for whatever the real issue is. But whatever the real issue is, they're having so much trouble communicating about it without hurting each other. They often feel unknown and unloved in the midst of something very difficult. And so part of my first job is to give them a tool, a way that they might be able to listen to each other and get on the same page. I'm going to give that to you in our last session. Right, so, so put a pin in the sense of, okay, Josh, you're telling me all these problems. What do I do about it when it comes to this? I'll, I'll give you an active listening skill uh, uh, set when we get to session number three. But this is why people often come for marriage counseling in the first place. A lot of good research here, but there's a guy by the name of John Gottman. How many people have ever heard of John Gottman's name before? Yeah, a smattering of hands. It's interesting to me where Gottman's name comes up. If you've done any real research in marriage and family therapy, his name almost always comes up. But even um, a guy like Malcolm Gladwell did, uh, had a book with uh, a chapter on John Gottman. And the reason is, is that in the late 80s, early 90s, some research that audited his work found that he could tell which marriages were headed for divorce and which ones weren't, just by listening to a five-minute segment of their conflict. And the rate of which he was able to be accurate was like 92%. I mean, it seemed like magical numbers. So he was audited multiple times, and, and it still came out. Like he's, he's that good at listening. That material, by the way, and, and we'll talk about it here it's where some of this comes from, is in a really readable book called Why Marriages Succeed or Fail by John Gottman, uh, written in the late 90s, really. It's got some great little questionnaires at the end of each chapter that you can use and use them pretty easily. Uh, so I would recommend, like, you know, if you're looking for something to add into your rotation to read, by the way, you should have a marriage or family book that you're rotating through at least annually. Um, this is one of those books that you could, you could rotate into your reading, and it would give you some helpful things. So one of the things that Gottman found was that, that there is a five-to-one ratio that healthy couples have in positive to negative interactions. So five positive interactions for every one negative interaction keeps you on a positive, healthy, and happy trajectory. Which means that you could have a ratio where 80% of the time you're having a positive interaction and you're still on the wrong side. 
That's crazy. Five to one. Now, that doesn't mean that every single interaction has to be, oh, that was so sweet, right? I feel so loved and I feel so heard. It can be just a, hey, how you doing? Fine. How are you? Good, right? How are you, sweetie? You can grab a hand, a little kiss on the cheek, whatever it is. It's just, it's fine, right? I feel like in that moment, we had a positive interaction. It wasn't negative. Um, you both kind of walk away with the assessment that wasn't painful, that didn't hurt. Now, if you're in a healthy marriage or in a newer marriage, maybe that seems like, well, no, duh, of course, right? Five to one, and we, we have positive interactions at all, except you also know that if you end up in one of those spirals, you know what I mean, someone did something, and you go, what was what, what happened? You, you seem upset. Nothing. No, no, no. You mean you seem, you seem like, is there something? Did I do something? Nothing. Right? And uh, okay, I mean, it seems like I did something. It seems like, is there, it seems like you're feeling, no, I'm fine. Okay. And then all of a sudden, positive interactions start going down and down and down. Right? And so it's easy to find yourself on the opposite side of this five to one ratio. The other thing that he found is something called negative affect reciprocity. That's a, that, use that phrase sometime over the next week. Sweetie, you're having negative affect reciprocity. You need to stop. Uh, the idea is, is that, um, as, as my professor would say, that someone's negative emotions, they don't just impact me, they infect me. So when I walk in the door and I've had a bad day and I'm talking about my bad day, my spouse, instead of saying something like, oh, sweetie, that sounds like a hard day. Is there something I can do for you? No. Okay, that's fine. And she can continue to have a good day in the presence of my bad day. I'm having a bad day. And so your having a good day feels like an offense to me. And now you need to be having a bad day with me because misery loves company, right? And that, that sort of like pulling you down, a negative affect. I mean, how often, if that's true, if that's, if that's how marriage works, how often are you both just in a great mood? Not very often. Maybe early but once you start having kids and, and job gets stressful and all the things that go on, man, it takes a lot of work to try and keep yourself in a positive emotional state. And the likelihood that one has just had enough on top of them that they're not in the moment a really good spot is relatively high. And so you need to have this ability to be like, sweetie, that sounds like a bad day. And I, is there anything I'll do anything you need me to do, right? As long as it's not immoral, I'll, I'll do whatever. Um, can I you know, get you something? Do you want to sit and talk? What, whatever. I'm here for you. No, you just want to, okay, fine. I'm going to continue to have my good day and go spend some time with the kids or go do whatever. And when you want to reconnect, you let me know. Okay, that's fine. So it's the ability to keep yourself out of the resonance where you bounce off one another, that sort of negativity. And my negative space becomes your negative space. And then we both just go down uh, the, the, rabbit hole together. And then, and then one of the other things that he found is that people who 
have communication issues always tend to take the worst possible interpretations of each other. We're actually going to talk more about this here in just a second when we talk about credibility issues because this is indicative of a relationship that doesn't have trust. But you're always thinking through what is the most negative way, and, and you're not even trying to do it, it's just the way that you exegete them, right? So I've had couples where I've said, okay, here's something that you can do. I want you to sit, I want you to take time, 30 minutes every night between now and the next time we see each other to just talk and listen to one another. Practice reconnecting and opening up to one another and receiving each other and being vulnerable with each other. And we'll get back together and I'll say, hey, did that happen? And they'll say, yes, it happened, but they only did it because you told them to. Well, that's probably true because you did come to me for help. But also they did it. Like they, they actually went through the effort to do it. Well, he only wanted one thing and you know what that is. Okay, I don't. Let's just give credit where credit is due. Right? And instead, because we're sinners, almost everything we do has sin in the mix. Um, I love the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's, that's our uh, constitutional document in the denomination that I'm a part of, is the Westminster Confession of Faith. And. Uh, shorter catechism question, I believe it's 82, says, can any man keep the commands of God perfectly? And the answer is no mere man, so accepting Christ there, can keep the commands of God perfectly, but doth sin in thought and word and deed daily. I mean, these were brilliant men who were about as pious as I can imagine men being, and they recognize that they sin in all of these areas. And if by daily, they don't mean like once a day. They mean there's not a day where it doesn't happen, is what they mean. And so it's so easy for us to find the sin in each other's intentionality because sin is always present versus trying to look for the good trying to look for the positive, right? And so positive couples that uh, have good communication skills are always trying to give each other kudos where they can, rather than looking and taking the worst possible interpretations. So uh, a, a couple of things that we wanna talk about as far as like creating a toxic atmosphere in your communication Again, sticking with Gottman here, he's, he's so helpful. Um, and, and here you've got some of his, um, his background data, you know, former head of University of Washington, um, psych department, heavily data-driven. And then here it is, the ability to predict marriage failure. But in that book that I was telling you about, Why Marriages Succeed or Fail, he has what he calls the four horsemen He's not a believer. The four horsemen of kind of the marriage apocalypse is what he calls them, okay? And they are defensiveness, stonewalling, criticism, and contempt. So defensive and, defensiveness and stonewalling are on the passive side. Criticism and contempt are on the aggressive side. 
And so we're going to talk about each of those four and give you a sense of why they're so toxic for your uh, marriage. So defensiveness. This is, uh, as, couples, as couples come together, there are usually this, this particular type of configuration where one of you is what they would call a pursuer and one of you is typically a distancer. Is that always? No, but it's a large, large, large majority of the time. Right? And so I wonder if one of you is the type of person that, you know, whenever there's a problem, we're going to work it out right now. We need to talk about it. I want to talk about it. I just want us to work this out. I want to figure it. I already see fingers pointing, I, people jabbing each other in the ribs. We have got to figure this out right now. And then the other person's like, I just need some space, man. Just give me some space and we'll, you know, and, and if, if we really need to talk about it, I guess we'll talk about it at some point down the road, let's say in one or two years. <laughs> so, so these more passive toxic techniques are usually the distancer side, the one that's trying to push for space. And so one of them is defensiveness. It's, it's the not quite as toxic. And defensiveness, what it tends to do is not take any personal responsibility. That's, that's the hallmark of defensiveness. It tends to shirk any sort of responsibility for whatever is going on. Uh, as I was talking to your leaders again last night, that Adam in the very first sin was a perfect defensiveness example. It is the woman that you gave me, God. No personal accountability. Lord, I should have stepped in. You told me what was right and what was true, and then you gave me the role to be the protector. Not only did I fail in my role, but I didn't trust love and have faith in you. That's, that's what he should have said. Instead, nope, God, your fault, your fault, God. And not only is it your fault, it's the fault of that thing, which just a chapter earlier, he was, he was oozing and gushing about. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, right? That thing, you made her, and it's her fault too. So defensiveness tends to shirk any sort of personal responsibility for whatever issue is going on. Uh, there's a couple of categories of how people tend to do it. Blame shifting, somebody else's fault, excusing. You know, it's not, it's not that bad. Diminishing, or here's the reason why I did it. Diminishing, it's not that bad. Um, it runs contrary to the splinter and log Christian commitment. That in any interaction... I will first and foremost look at the splinter in my eye or the log in my eye before I try and do surgery on the splinter in yours. So rather than shirking responsibility, I'm going to take responsibility. Hey, you did this thing and it hurt me, but I still fell down in my response to you. I didn't act like I was supposed to act to you. And for that, I'm genuinely sorry. And I'm going to try and be better the next time. I have to do this with my kids relatively frequently. You know, my wife would have told you 16 years ago that she married the only man on the face of the earth that never got angry. 
and then we had kids. My kids seemed to know how to just bring out of me, like, I can't believe you did that, you know? <laughs> and, and even stupid things like, you're going to enjoy this day, you know? Like, how, can, how many times can I threaten them to be happy? <laughs> it's so ridiculous. And so I have to come to my children with some regularity. I mean, it's not every day, it's not every week, but more often than I like, where I have to say, son or daughter, you still should not have reacted this way. I told you to do something, you chose not to do it, and there's a consequence for disobeying. I should not have yelled at you. Yelling is not parenting. Anger is not parenting. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Right? And that's it's the opposite of being the defensive, like, well, I've told you three times to do this, and you know, yelling isn't the bad, at least it's effective, right? Diminishing, excusing, and blame shifting. So that's the first level. But the second level, and, and the most toxic of the distancer, is stonewalling. Stonewalling is, you know, I finally created such a high wall around my heart you don't matter to me anymore. You can say anything you want to about what I've done and how I've hurt you. It doesn't matter. There's another guy who has written, um, Gurren is his last name, and he puts marital conflict into stages, stage one, two, three, and four. And stage four, sort of like cancer, is the worst. And the hallmark of stage four is A, you've, you've called the divorce lawyers. That's, that's a pretty big hallmark that the, the conflict and the marriage isn't going well when you've called divorce lawyers. And secondly, what he calls the island of invulnerability. When people begin to report, it doesn't matter to me what my spouse does. They can be angry, they can be hurt, they can, it doesn't matter. Because the opposite of love isn't anger, it's indifference. And when you get to the indifference stage, it is disastrous for your marriage. So if you're, if you're a distancer, if you're somebody who doesn't like to do the conflict, you've got to watch out for these two in your marriage, that you take ownership and that you continue to be moved for and by your spouse. What's the number one emotion ascribed to Christ in the Gospels? Does anyone know? Compassion. Compassion is the number one emotion. When you begin to cut yourself off from being moved by your spouse, you are cutting them off from a reflection of the gospel. You're being worldly to them. No matter how much it hurts, and it hurts like crazy to reflect with my wife when I'm the one that's hurt her. And yet I have to push myself to make sure I'm able to continue to do that because Christ has called me to do it and he's called me to reflect his character most saliently to my spouse more than anybody else. Okay, so distancers. And distancers, it can be either but gender typically by about a two-third, one-third clip. Distancers tend to be men. Um, but, but again, not always. Next one, pursuers. So on the one side, there was defensiveness, 
and stonewalling. On the other side, there is criticism and contempt. So if you tend to be the assertive one, we need to work this out. Then here are the ways in which you have to be careful because you can get to the place where you are uh, overly hurting. So the first one is criticism. Criticism focuses on the person rather than the issue. And I used to have a professor who would say there's a difference between a throw, a show, and a share. So a throw is your partners are here and the issue's here, but most of your energy is coming at each other. A show, all of a sudden our energy is at the issue, but it doesn't reveal anything about my heart. We're just troubleshooting the issue. A share lets you inside how much I'm hurt and sad, how frustrated I am. And it's that last that allows through conflict for your hearts to connect. So we're not just trying to figure out how we're not going to get into a fight next time. We're trying to resolve so that we don't get into a fight next time, but more than that, we feel heard, known, and loved by one another. So, so criticism goes to the throw maneuver. I'm really hurt, I'm really angry, and it's you, 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 you. You're, you know criticism by the heavy use of the you language. You did this and you did that. Rather than I'm hurting, I'm sad, I'm frustrated. Be careful of the you make me feel language. Uh, our words are really important. Y'all know that. There's an entire group of psychology called neurolinguistic programming that is dedicated to how the use of, of just one or two changes in how you think or what you say can radically change how you look at the world. And when your constant narrative and reframe is, you make me feel, who's responsible for my feelings? You are not me. You may have done something and it's painful and I hurt. That is true. But I'm responsible for my feelings. I'm in pain. I suffer. I don't like what just happened. Not you did this. Whenever it begins to be you, 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 we don't take responsibility. We are now the victim. You have done this to me. I'm a victim of your intentionality that then tripped my emotions. Uh, and what can I do in the face of that? And the truth is you did something and it may have been sinful and it may have been wrong and it may have been hurtful. And let's hope that was on accident, but sometimes we sin against each other intentionally. That's terrible, but it happens. I'm still responsible for how I feel. And I'm still responsible for how I responded to you in that moment. So criticism tends to demean and look at the person rather than the issue. Contempt. Now, I told you before that Gottman was able with like a 92% accuracy, able to tell which marriages were going to succeed and which one were going to fail. There was a separate audit done to see what is really the center of all of this. And what they found was that if he detected contempt, it was the most toxic to any relationship. Contemptuous language had the highest predictor 
of relational failure. So what is contempt? Contempt is known by the hallmark phrase, I would never. It puts you in a morally superior category. I can't believe my spouse did that, and if I were in their shoes, I would never. Now, we've all said that in our hearts. We've all had those thoughts in our mind. But the point is, is the moment that you recognize that that sort of thought and feeling is going on in your mind, you are to kill it. Because what is the truth about our sin and our sinful hearts? But for the grace of God, there go I. About everything. One of my favorite quotes from Robert Murray McShane, uh, a famous kind of uh, Puritan-esque preacher, the seed of every sin lives in the heart of every man. Of course, by man, he means person. So there's no sin. There's no sin that I am impervious to. Actually, every once in a while, I'll do this exercise with people where I'll say, what I want you to do is I want you to close your eyes. Don't, don't actually raise your hand, but close your eyes and imagine raising your hand to this question if you agree, or this, raise your hand if you would agree with this statement. I would never cheat on my spouse. In your mind, in your imagination, raise your hand if you agree with that statement, right? Because I don't want people actually looking. Okay, but I need you, I need you to go through the, the effort of actually doing something because otherwise you'll just assume the correct answer. Okay, you know, can you visualize yourself? Yes, okay, go ahead and open your eyes for me. If you visualized your hand going up for the question, I would never cheat on my spouse, you are four times more likely to actually have an affair because you have already taken the very first step for Satan thinking that you are impervious to a type of sin. And he loves that. He can spread all kinds of seeds there. And you have self-blinded to that. So there is no position for a Christian to be able to look down at anyone else and say, I would never do that. I would do that and worse. Except for God in his graciousness and kindness is restraining sin in my life. Thank you, Lord. Right? And so, we, so we just don't have a place to judge one another's character. That is the most toxic of all of the communication issues that you can have is contemptuous. I can't believe I'm married to somebody who would. Now, more modernly, when you really begin to push down this, what you end up with is people who believe in some sort of pathology. Okay, So my spouse is a narcissist. Right? Like that, that becomes the narrative because they now um, are morally deficient and I've got some, some narrative for it. My spouse is really autistic, so they can't, they can't listen and have some sort of relational experience, right? Now, there might, there's, there's actually people who are narcissists and autism is a thing, but usually it's relatively apparent and doesn't reveal itself after 15 or 20 years of marriage. Usually comes about before then. And you would recognize it before then. So oftentimes it's the pathological or pathologizing one another that finds itself as a subtle version of contempt. I would never be like that because I'm not broken 
like them. All right, so that's the end of communication issues. Last C, credibility issues. I'm going to fly through some of this. So John Gottman, again, in, in his later stages, he's, he's married to a counseling psychologist. That is, she does counseling in the room. He is a clinical psychologist. He, he makes the observations. And so they came together. And what she really wanted was to work on a protocol right? Because she was like, look, John, you can, you can tell me what looks healthy and what is unhealthy, but you can't get me from unhealthy to healthy. And that's what I need. I need a protocol, right? So most of John Gottman's material is actually really readable. You just need to bring a Christian lens to it when you read it. It's going to be secular. Um, the last two books, unless you're having trouble sleeping, I would not recommend. They are dry as can be. They're meant for like therapists, a lot of, you know, statistical analysis and things like that. But at the core of his treatment is this idea of trust. He says that trust is the currency upon which all relationships trade. I think that's probably true. The problem is, well, then how do you define trust? And this is his definition of trust. Super portable. Actually, he's got a really big definition of trust. He was doing a conference and he gave this definition and I thought, man, this definition is actually the better definition. Knowing you are for me even when it costs you. That's his definition of trust. Now, he's not a believer. But I think he has probably hit on one of the best gospel definitions of trustworthiness that one could. I just... Let's just pause marriage for a second and let's talk Jesus for a second. Your Lord and Savior knew what it was to live perfectly in communion. He had no needs. He didn't have physical needs. He didn't have emotional needs. And he was perfect in glory. And he chose... Even though he didn't need anything, he doesn't need you. He chose to do everything for you. He chose to take on flesh, to be incarnate, to perfectly fulfill the law, and then to take on not only the physical death, but the rent and connection that is hell on the cross, that is spiritual death, for your good even though it did not get him anything that he needed. Do you understand that? That is incredible. When you see the word steadfast next to God, which is, which is a little bit older English way of saying most trustworthy. And it is one of the number one attributes given to God it's because he is always for you even when it cost him everything. That's amazing. And if Christ can do that for me, I can do a little bit of it for my spouse. And say, okay, I'm willing to be for you and to show you that I am for you even when it costs me. So the number one issue is mistrust. 
Now, mistrust and trust are not actually polar opposites. One of the things that he found is that there are two separate domains. One is trust, one is mistrust. And you can actually be relatively high on trust and relatively high on mistrust, and most young couples are. They they wouldn't get married if you didn't have a high degree of trust, but you also haven't made it through anything difficult yet to prove that you're for me even when it costs you. And so there's a relatively high level of mistrust as well. So there are four states of trust. The one that we want is we trust each other. It expects trustworthy behavior. It exegetes each other's behavior in kind ways, right? All of a sudden, I can't get a hold of my spouse. They must be busy. They must not have cell phone coverage, something. Versus if I don't trust them, what are the thoughts that are going through my mind? What are they doing? Why aren't they available? Who are they with? So the state of trust allows for flexibility and connection and doesn't always undercut relationship and personality. It also gives grace for failure. You know, in a world where if you fail, you are canceled, there is nothing like grace. More and more people are losing any room for grace. And this is an incredible opportunity for you to display grace to each other and the nature of Christ. Second state, you trust me. So all of a sudden, there's a sense in which you have trust for me, but I don't trust you. Your partner is unaware that all of a sudden you have lost, that they have lost your trust. And there's a sort of hypervigilance, always looking for untrustworthy behavior. Rather than trying to give credit for trustworthiness, it's trying to see and, oh, you, you weren't there when I told you you were five minutes late and you did this and you gave me this thing, but it's only because you want something else. And you're always interpreting out of the mistrust that you have. And where the other has grace, this has criticism. It lacks any room for people to make genuine mistakes and to sin against each other, again, sometimes on accident and sometimes on purpose. And it tends to have that sort of contemptuous vibe to it, looking down at our spouses. Third state, I trust you. So I trust you, but you don't trust me. And this is confusing because I don't understand what is going on. I keep trying in good faith to love you and to be connected to you. And all of a sudden, all I'm getting is more distance. It creates bitterness because no matter what I do, you always seem to assume the worst of my motives. Your radar for my sin seems really finely attuned. But for what I want to do for you positively, you seem to have no radar at all. And then the last state, we don't trust each other. What John uh, Gottman would call the swamp. Easy to get into, hard to get out of. I don't trust you and you don't trust me. Constant misinterpretation of motives. 
constant kind of resonating in the negative, constant contemptuousness and defensiveness going on. How do you get out of that particular uh, swamp? Well, you do something like create what I would call watermarks. Uh, uh, Gottman has this illustration that trust is like water in a water bucket. And so you can get to the place where you have enough. There is not, it doesn't have to overflow the top, but it's enough for you to genuinely feel trustworthy and trusting of them. But then it can also get to the point where you have no trust. And in order to build that back up, you have to define what trustworthy behaviors are And you have to define what it is to show you, to give you privileges and freedoms of earned trust. So so a trustworthy behavior may be, I'm going to be where I say I'm going to be on time, especially if you're recovering from some sort of infidelity. I'm going to allow you to see my phone and to audit anything on my phone for a period of time. Like, you deserve to be able to do that as you and I are building trust again with one another. And yet the other is trying to show, okay, you have earned trust, so I'm going to give you more freedoms. And the key is that both people have to be willing to go one step further than they feel comfortable. I'm going to give you one step more freedom than I feel you've earned. And the other person is willing to go one step further to prove themselves than they feel that they should have to. And if both people are willing to do that, so it's not a constant, golly, it happened six months ago, can we quit talking about it? Can you quit auditing my phone? Can you quit whatever? It's like, no, let's keep, let's keep talking about it. I, it's painful, I don't like it, but if you need to keep talking, let's keep talking. You want to audit my phone, here's my phone. You can do it right? The other one, look, I'm really scared right now. It's been right around six months and I fear you're going back into it, but I, I know you need time with your friends and so you're going to go out with your friends tonight. I, I you know, ask that you be back at a whatever time, but I'm going I'm to give you more freedom than I feel like you have earned at this moment. And in that mutual discomfort and that mutual dissatisfaction, what you find is the ability to reconnect and to build trust and mutual satisfaction. The biggest thing for me, Gottman won't tell you a thing about this, is that your trust is ultimately not in each other. It's in the Lord. So Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? What can my spouse do to me? So when I act trusting, it's not that I trust them as much as I trust the one that stands behind them and the one that stands over me. Lord, okay, this is scary for me. By the way, do you know what was going on in David's life when he wrote this? He was trying to escape Saul. He has Goliath's sword on his back. He wanders, he doesn't wander, he runs into Gath, which is where Goliath is from. And there's this ditty that everyone's singing that is Saul killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. 
because of what happened at the battle where Goliath was killed. And so you walk into Goliath's hometown looking like David with Goliath's sword on your back, which is a sword that looked like no other sword in all of existence. Things are not going to go well for you. And so he was waiting to be tortured and killed when he wrote this. That's, that's a tough place to be. There are times in your marriage where it feels like trust gets down and it feels like torture and death. And yet I'm going to take one step of faith in them. And that step of faith ultimately isn't rooted in them, but it's rooted in the gospel that stands behind them. And if I can do that, then we can work our way through this trust issue to start building that trust back up. Because I think Gottman's right. Trust is the currency upon which all relationships trade. And there is nothing more trustworthy than the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are steadfast, that you never leave us and you never betray us, that you are always working for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes. Even when we can't discern your providence, even when we can't see your face, that we know that you are working for us. And this is self-evident because you are willing to send your son the one whom you loved perfectly, to suffer and die that we might be yours. Such a price, Lord, such a cost cannot be in vain. And so help us that at times when we find ourselves working towards places that lead our marriages to distress, and especially when we begin to get to the place where we mistrust more than we trust, to reach out in faith to you and your gospel, to apply it to our lives, that it might give us the strength and resilience to put one step forward in faith and trust, that we might more and more build each other up, that there might be more of the gospel of grace in us and in our marriages, and that you and you alone would get all the glory and honor. We love you and pray this in your son's name. Amen.